Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com haunted. I'll see you there. Loss has a profound impact, striking at the core of our being and influencing our world perception. Our experiences shape us, molding our interactions and perspectives. Within culture and religious diversity, angels and death share a symbolic bond. It is customary, particularly within religious traditions, to place angel statues alongside traditional headstones. Angels embody the symbolic connection between the celestial and earthly realms. Their essence of strength, peace, faith, protection, and beauty brings solace to those mourning the departure of loved ones. Angel costumes and artwork commonly grace Christmas and other joyous celebrations. However, within an Oakland cemetery, a black angel has gained notoriety for associating with eerie supernatural phenomena. The various postures these angels assume hold significant meaning as they watch over their respective graves. An angel in the prayerful stance represents the departed's deep devotion to God. In contrast, an upwards pointing angel serves as a symbolic guide, leading the soul towards heavenly realms. A weeping angel embodies profound sorrow for the loss of a cherished one, and a bowed head angel signifies mourning, especially during a sudden or unexpected passing. While angels are typically crafted from granite, bronze is also utilized. Environmental elements affect granite angels less, whereas bronze statues can bring unforeseen consequences. In 1839, Burlington served as the capital before the Iowa Territory became a state. Governor Robert Lucas believed that relocating the capital closer to the territory center was necessary, leading to the establishment of Iowa City by the legislature. Within two years, when the capital was officially moved there, the once small hamlet had transformed into a modest city. However, a pressing issue arose. They lacked a proper resting place for the deceased. Consequently, in 1843, the Oakland Cemetery was deeded to the people of Iowa City. 
Oh boy, this is some pronunciation. Therese Karasek, anglicized as Teresa, oh thank heaven, was born on October 14th, 1836 in Bohemia, what is now Chechnya, formerly the Czech Republic. At age 30, in 1865, she'd married, oh boy, Frantisic Dozizial. Yep, a doctor from Moravia. Their firstborn son, Otto. See, that's a nice name. Tragically passed away two weeks after birth. Oh. Following their devastating loss, Teresa pursued a career as a midwife. She obtained her certification in Vienna and turned to Smitilov, where she became a highly accomplished midwife. Or Stromilov. I can't print anything Eastern European. Out the window for old Chrissy. Um, she, anyway, she assisted in delivering nearly 100 children. As Teresa approached her 40s, she gave birth to her second son, Edward, who became known as, well, I guess it was pronounced Edward, and he became known as Edward. So, she gave birth to her second son, Edward, who became known as Edward. When Edward was four years old, Teresa decided to leave her husband. She immigrated to the United States with her son in 1877. The reasons behind her departure from her husband remain unknown. Still, it was typical for immigrants from Bohemia and Slovakia to settle in Iowa, finding employment on railroads and farms. Interesting. It's very interesting when you see the immigration patterns and where people settle. It's, it's mind-blowing. Like, uh, again, I've, I think I've talked about this in the past, about just like getting on a boat. There's no photos. There's no like tour guide. There's no YouTube channel you can just turn on and be like, you know what? I'm going to this place. Let me... Google and see if there's a video on it. I do that. I'm guilty of that. Anywhere I go, I watch a YouTube video on it. It's become a, a sickness. Even places I'm not going. I'm like, oh, let me see what this place is like. But anyway, that didn't exist in the 1800s, obviously. So, very scary time. Anyway, accounts of Teresa's history vary, with some claiming she transitioned from being a physician to practicing midwifery upon arriving in America. In contrast, Others contend that she was a midwife throughout her career. Regardless, though, Teresa's son Edward aspired to follow in her footsteps and become a doctor. In his late teens, he worked at a drugstore. Sadly, Edward contracted meningitis at 17 or 18 and passed away in 1891. He was laid to rest in Oakland Cemetery, where his mother erected a monument in his honor, a tree stump with an axe protruding, symbolizing his life tragically cut short. Following Edward's death, Teresa embarked on a series of relocations, living in Chicago and marrying her second husband, Joseph, in Minnesota. When the marriage ended, her travels eventually led her to Eugene, Oregon, where she met and married her third husband, a German rancher by the name of Nicholas Federvelt. On March 20th, 1897, they were wed by the Justice of a Peace, A.E. Wheeler, in the parlor of the Wald House in Eugene. Nicholas, who had previously been married twice and experienced the loss of his only daughter, passed away in 1911. Around this time, Teresa returned to Iowa City, bringing her husband's ashes to rest alongside her son. In memory of her late husband, she commissioned Mario Corbel, a Czech sculptor based in Chicago, to create the iconic monument known locally as the Black Angel. It's important to note that the Black Angel in Oakland Cemetery should not be confused with the Black Angel in Council Buffs, Iowa regarded as a remarkable work of art sculpted by Daniel Chester French. French is also renowned for his creations such as the seated Abraham Lincoln statue within the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., and the Minutemen sculpture in Concord, Massachusetts. 
While the exact timeline of the Black Angels commission and delivery remains disputed, it is generally believed that the statue was commissioned between 1911 and 1913, and the delivery to Oakland Cemetery between 1912 and 1915. Unfortunately, the lack of historical documentation makes it challenging to pinpoint the precise dates. Following Nicholas's death, he left behind no heirs. Consequently, his estate, estimated at $30,000, which is equivalent to around $800,000 today, defaulted to his widow, Teresa. Teresa sold their ranch and generously sent money back to Strimolov, supporting students and public welfare through scholarships and community projects. As her own years dwindled, she used her husband's wealth, knowing that she had no immediate heirs to leave it to. Projects in Bohemia, including a grade school, benefited from her generosity. Initially, the statue watching over the Feldevert family plot was a magnificent golden bronze monument, representing Teresa's love and grief for her numerous losses throughout her life. The eight-and-a-half-foot sculpture, crafted by Mario Corbel, took months to create, and being cast in bronze was a costly commission. According to the story, the statue was installed after a period, and Teresa was reportedly dissatisfied with the result. Conflicting accounts arise here, and there are some variations suggesting immediate installation upon arrival by train. In contrast, others claim that the statue remained stored in a barn for six years while Teresa pursued a lawsuit. Eventually, upon losing the suit, it is assumed that she paid the artist the $5,000 owed and proceeded to install the angel on a four-foot pedestal, where her husband's ashes were interred. She then moved her son's monument to stand alongside the angel. Teresa passed away from cancer on November 18, 1924, and her ashes were placed next to her husband's. Regrettably, she did not leave behind any funds to inscribe the monument with her date of death. Her remaining estate was appraised at $1,393.21. Without immediate heirs, she donated $500 for a memorial honoring fallen soldiers in Sturmilov, $500 for books in the town's public library, and the remaining amount for scholarships benefiting two or three deserving boys. The Black Angel of Oakland Cemetery has attracted seekers of paranormal thrills for several decades, thanks to the eerie legend surrounding it. However, the stories surrounding the monument are often more fictional than factual, with writers embellishing them for a captivating narrative. The true story of Teresa and her family reveals no immediate reason for the angel to be haunted or cursed. While loss is a part of life, there was no instances of infidelity, suicide, or murder within the family. Nonetheless, the monument's unsettling appearance after Teresa's death has contributed to the famous urban legend. The wild myths and legends surrounding the Black Angel primarily stem from the disturbing transformation of the monument. Although the truth is that the statue, cast in bronze, has oxidized it over time due to environmental factors. This explanation might dampen the allure for those eager to believe in the paranormal. To those who do not delve deeply into the true story behind the Black Angel, it is understandable how its reputation could evoke fear even in seasoned investigators. Teresa Feldevert was a mysterious woman, leading many to believe she was a witch. Debates persisted regarding whether or not she was cursed, possessed, or she haunted the statue. Did she invoke some nameless evil to inhabit the angel? Or was it her evil nature that cursed the angel to turn black as a reminder of her family's sins? Some claim that a severe storm raged the night following Teresa's burial, with lightning striking the angel and turning it black. The myths grow increasingly outlandish based solely on rumors that lose coherence upon closer examination of the legend. 
Some believe a man erected the monument over his wife's grave, which turned black due to her infidelity during their marriage. Others maintain that a preacher buried his son beneath the angel, which turned black because this preacher murdered his own child. Some believe that the angel darkens every Halloween as a tribute to those who have fallen victim of the alleged curse upon the statue. Adding to the intrigue, visitors have shared first-hand accounts of ghostly voices and mysterious lights floating around the monument. So how can you ensure your safety during an encounter with the Black Angel of Oakland Cemetery? I'm sure that's the question you're asking. Well, here's a list to help you navigate your experience without incident. Never touch or kiss the angel. To do so means instant death, unless you're a virgin. That's a weird rule. Never kiss a girl near the angel in the moonlight. The girl will die within six months. Never touch the angel at midnight on Halloween. To do so means you'll die within seven years. These are very specific. If you're pregnant, never walk between the angel's statue's wings. Otherwise, you'll risk a miscarriage. Suppose you happen to be a co-ed of the University of Iowa. In that case, tradition states you must be kissed before the black angel. If a virgin is kissed in front of the angel, then the angel will return to its original bronze color, and the curse will finally be lifted. So come on, someone go help us out. Throughout the history of the black angel, it's been observed that the black color has remained intact, never revealing the original bronze beneath. However, there have been instances where the monument's color has changed due to vandalism attempts. There's always somebody who wants to ruin the party. One notable incident occurred on a cold January day in 1965 when the angel was painted a silvery gray. Due to the weather conditions, the color remained until it was safe to undertake repairs without causing damage. Additionally, several fingers were removed from the statue using hammers and hacksaws at another time. That's a very daring act, considering the alleged belief that defacing the angel brings death. Hey folks, um, just wanted to stop here in the middle, like I've been normally doing lately. I'll get used to it though, I'm not probably going to do this a lot. Eh, maybe I will. Anyway, uh, I just wanted to apologize for the lack of episodes for the month of June. I know uh, people have been reaching out to me like, hey, where are the episodes going? I know at the beginning of June, I was like, hey, I got some extra episodes coming up. But uh, so basically what's going on is I'm switching hosting services, moving hosting host providers. The whole Bloody bloody FM network is uh, doing it. And I've done that in the past when, you know, before I joined with the Bloody FM network, I was on a different host. And when I joined them, it, it, was, it was a pretty simple process of just kind of like a day or so being down. But, you know, with them moving an entire network worth of shows, there was risks that if I uploaded episodes... Um, they could have been lost or, you know, something would have happened in the transfer. So I decided to hold off. But the good news is I was able in that amount of time to create a backlog of episodes. So, um, yeah, so I'm probably going to be going weekly now, maybe even twice a week for, uh, at least for, at least this week's going to be twice a week. And then going forward, probably weekly for a a little while. Listen, I'm going to try to do permanently weekly, but, you know. This whole having a newborn thing is kind of slowing me down. But anyway, just wanted to give you guys a little bit of an update and apologize for, you know, the the lack of episodes. Listen, believe me, it's not for a lack of trying. Yeah, and also if you've been listening, uh, you've noticed there's probably no ads running on the show. That's another thing with the the network change. So, I mean, hey, listen, that's a little 
little insight on what it's like to be a Patreon member where we don't have ads. And, uh, you know, these episodes will be, obviously, they get uploaded there earlier. So if you're interested, I went to the American History Patreon, patreon.com slash went to the American History. I don't know why I said it backwards. Oh, yeah, and speaking of ads, if you go back and listen to some other episodes, you might hear the ads, like, in wonky places and not where I put them. That's another thing with the network transfer. It's kind of they're just, you know, placing it directly in the middle, so it might come up mid-word or mid-sentence, something like that. And uh, until I go back and manually fix it all, that's what, what's going to happen. But I'm going to do it. Thank God I don't have a tremendous backlog like some of the other shows on the network. I only have about 70 episodes to go through. And, uh, yeah. So let's continue with Iowa. And I'd be remiss if I was talking about Iowa without bringing up Velisca. Hey, folks. You guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion. It's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. June 11th, 1912 is a day etched in history, forever marked by a horrific event. Eight innocent individuals met a brutal and inexplicable fate on this day as they were mercilessly bludgeoned to death while asleep. The victims consisted of a family of six, along with two friends of the children who were staying at their home in Villisca, Iowa, after attending church the previous night. It was customary for many residents of Villisca not to lock their doors when away for church, which possibly allowed the murderer to enter the home unnoticed, waiting for them to return. Evidence led the police to believe that the killer had been hiding in the attic before the murders, as cigarette butts were discovered there. When a neighbor noticed the family had not begun their usual morning chores on the 11th, she contacted Russ Moore, the brother of Josiah Moore. Russ Moore went to the house to investigate and was confronted with a horrifying scene. He immediately alerted the police, who pieced together the sequence of events. The initial victim of the night's gruesome attack was Josiah Moore, who endured the most savage assault, reportedly inflicted with the blade of his family's own axe. Sarah Moore was next to be murdered, along with their children and two family friends, 
eight-year-old Inna Mae Stillinger and 12-year-old Lena Gertrude Stillinger. All the victims were believed to have been asleep when the assailant struck, except for Lena, who exhibited defensive wounds and was found in an unusual position in her bed. The crime scene presented several perplexing and unsettling elements that added to the mystery. One peculiar discovery was the family's axe, left lying on the floor of the guest room where the Stillinger sisters were staying. Curiously, alongside the axe was a four-pound piece of slab bacon. The significance of this unusual arrangements remains to be determined. Another eerie detail was the presence of covered mirrors throughout the house. The killer had taken time to drape blankets or clothes over the mirrors, leaving investigators puzzled about the purpose behind this act. Speculation surrounds the symbolism or personal belief system that might have motivated such an action. Further adding to the enigma, it was found that the perpetrator had prepared a meal for themselves after committing the murders. However, this meal was left untouched, abandoned. Near the plate of food, a bowl of bloody water was discovered in the kitchen adding another disturbing element to the scene. These perplexing and inexplicable details left investigators and observers alike dumbfounded, unable to discern the true motives or meaning behind the killer's actions. These things continue to contribute to mystery and speculation surrounding the Villisca Axe murders. Following the discovery of the gruesome crime scene, investigators swiftly responded to the home. The possibility of a murder-suicide was promptly ruled out due to the nature of the victim's wounds, which indicated that they could not have been self-inflicted. With several potential suspects in mind, the focus turned to Reverend George Kelly. Reverend Kelly was a traveling minister who had arrived in town the previous night and conducted the church service attended by the Moore family. Suspicion fell upon him as he could not provide a satisfactory explanation for his whereabouts from 5 a.m. to 5.30 a.m. on the morning of the murders. Additionally, he exhibited a considerable interest in the crime. He had a troubled past, including incidents involving mailing obscene materials and a previous stay at a mental hospital. In 1917, Reverend Kelly was arrested and initially confessed to the murders. However, he later recanted his confession. Subsequently, he stood trial for the crimes, but was ultimately acquitted. Many doubted his mental and physical capability to do such a brutal act, leading to the lack of conviction. As a result, the case went cold, and no other individuals were ever brought to trial or convicted for the Felisca Axe murders. The mystery surrounding the identity of the actual perpetrator remains unsolved to this day. The Villisca Murder House, like many other homes associated with mass murders, has garnered a reputation for being haunted. Despite attempts by various families to reside in the house after the tragic event, none have managed to stay for long. In 1994, Martha Lynn purchased the home and restored it with the intention of turning it into an attraction. Visitors could take guided tours or even spend a night in the house. Over the years, the property has been featured on numerous ghost hunting shows, attracting attention for its reported paranormal activity. Visitors and investigators have recounted many eerie phenomena within the house. Reports include disembodied footsteps, voices, apparitions, and sightings of strange shadows. Objects have been observed moving on their own, and an overall sense of unease or negative energy has been expressed by many. One of the most mysterious events occurred on November 8, 2014 when a ghost hunter staying overnight in the house allegedly stabbed himself in the chest. 
he urgently called for help with his mobile two-way radio, and his companions found him with a self-inflicted injury. The timing of this event coincided with the anniversary of the original murders in 1912. The house has become a popular destination for individuals seeking to investigate the paranormal firsthand, drawn by its reputation as one of the most haunted places in America. In June of 2016, a photographer visited the Velisca Axe Murder House to capture images for a preview of the Ragbria Route, an annual bicycle ride across Iowa that garnered some 30,000 participants. While in the attic, where the killer was rumored to have been hidden, the photographer took a picture that caught the attention of many. Upon closer examination, viewers noticed that the chair's front leg appeared to be floating. This peculiar phenomenon had led many people to believe it could be attributed to a paranormal presence within the house. Furthermore, another image from the house's features a board adorned with various pictures. People have reported seeing floating orbs captured in different rooms throughout the house, which they believe represent the spirits of the murder victims. These intriguing photographs have added to the mystique surrounding the Velisca Axe Murder House, fueling speculation about supernatural phenomena within its walls. When doing research for the Velisca Axe Murder House, I came across some newspapers from 1912. And examining newspaper coverage from the 1912 Velisca Axe Murder House case provides an intriguing glimpse into the past. Most Velisca reviews stood out as a reliable source, offering the most accurate information regarding the tragic events. While journalists from various Midwest newspapers descended upon Velisca in search of the latest details, some reporters who couldn't obtain first-hand accounts resorted to embellishment and fabrication, weaving sensational narratives to capture their readership. Which leads me to my favorite Edgar Allan Poe quote that, you know, resonates true today. Believe nothing you hear, and only one half that you see. The aftermath of the murders was a chaotic period, with a flurry of misinformation disseminated in the days following the gruesome discovery. The proliferation of false reports contributed to confusion and laid the groundwork for subsequent conspiracy theories to take root. As a result, rumors swirled, further muddying the waters surrounding the case and making it challenging to separate the fact from the fiction. The following articles prove just that, with several names and details reported incorrectly. From the pages of the Kansas City Journal, June 11, 1912. Man who had key murders eight Iowans. 24 hours after the murder of the entire Joseph Moore family and two young women guests, eight in all, which occurred Sunday night, the authorities have been unable to get a single trace of the murderer and have little clue or no clue as to his identity. The murderer killed every person in the house with an axe and escaped without discovery. It is apparent he had a key to the door of the Moore home because all doors and windows were found locked. A revised list of the victims follows. Joseph B. Moore, Mrs. Joseph B. Moore, Herman Moore, aged 11, Catherine Moore, age nine, Boyd Moore, age seven, Paul Moore, age six, Lena Stillings, age 15, Inna Stillings, age nine, the Mrs. Stillings were overnight guests of the Moore home. Bloodhounds arrived here in the late evening train and were immediately taken to the Moore home. Within 10 minutes, they found a scent, which took them over a route to the edge of town and thence to the banks of the Nowaday River. They were followed closely by their keepers. 
Entering a deep woods along the river, the hounds led their followers over several miles of rough timberland in the Nowaday Bottoms. After an hour, the hounds returned to the river, where those following the dogs found fresh footprints in the soft, muddy bank and leading to the river. Those following the trail took the hounds across the river, but were unable to find any trace of the fugitive on the other side. At midnight, the posse returned to town and will start fresh in the morning. The bodies of the eight murdered persons were viewed late last night by a coroner's jury and turned over to the undertaker. They were removed from the city hall to be prepared for burial. A detail of militia guarded both the Moore home and city hall all night. The first intimation of the crime was given when a clerk of the implement house on Mr. Moore went to the Moore home to ascertain the cause of the employee's delay in reaching businesses. The dead, with one exception, were found in their beds in natural attires of sleeping, and until the crushed condition of their heads and the soaked pillows were discovered, it was impossible for the searchers to believe that anything was wrong. An axe showing without doubt it was the weapon used was found in an upstairs room where it was left by the assassin after he had completed his deadly work. Mr. and Mrs. Moore were in one bed, the clothing of which was, was not at least disturbed. In another bed were two of the boys. The sister occupied a third bed, and the youngest boy was alone in a smaller bed. In either instance was the bedding of the children disarranged. The Mrs. Stillings occupied a room in another part of the house, one of the girls had a cut on her arm and was in such a position as to indicate that she had awakened before the attack and that there was a short struggle. The tragedy is one of the most mysterious the officials of Iowa had ever had to deal with. There is absolutely no clue upon which to warrant an arrest and the utter absence of a possible motive has left the authorities in a maze of perplexity and doubt. Each identification of the two young women who were slain owing to the terrible condition of their faces, led to a report that they were Mrs. Van Gilder and her daughter. Mrs. Van Gilder is a sister to Mrs. Moore, who was understood that they were to be the guests of the Moore's house last night. Bloodstains, which will require the work of experts to handle in relation with the crime, including fingerprints of the murderer, are absolutely the only clue the officers have to work upon. Bloodstains were found on the front door near the doorknob and fingerprints were found in the house a feature of the tragedy which indicates that possibly the murderer left the house quickly was the finding of a lighted lamp upon the door of the Moore bedroom. All the blinds in the house were closely drawn. The doors were locked and all the windows were locked, but two opening from the room which the Spillinger girls occupied. As one of the posse were hunting in the railroad yards this evening, a tramp, becoming alarmed, gave himself up to the leaders for protection fearing that he might be a victim of the wrath of the townspeople before they had time to examine his identity. He was later identified by the railroad men and released, badly scared and left town quickly. Feeling is high and few persons slept in Velisca tonight. News of the crime traveled fast and there were hundreds of country people who soon came to the village. One puzzling feature of the crime which serves to heighten the mystery surrounding it is the apparent deliberation which the murderer went about committing the crime. All indications are that he entered the house by the front door with a key, and he left the same way and locked the door behind him. Dust upon the sills of two windows left unlocked shows he did not enter that way. After pulling down all the blinds in the house, a thing which the Moors never did, 
The murderer hung dress skirts, which he took from the closets, over each of the doors leading to the south side, and also over windows where a flashlight might have penetrated. From the pages of the Kansas City Journal, June 12, 1912. Victim's Sister Talks Miss Minnie Moore, sister of Joseph B. Moore, who, with his wife and four children and two young women, were murdered in the Moore home in Villisca, Iowa last night, is employed in a local women's wear establishment. She said today that John Van Gilder, who several years ago married a sister of Moore and herself, had left the city after trouble with his wife. She had been gone for years. That little tidbit shows you that even in the early 1900s, people would do anything to get their name in print, even if it's contacting a reporter about your sister's grisly murder just to tell them nonsense. From the pages of the Kansas City Journal, June 14, 1912. Many crimes similar. Colorado Springs authorities will investigate other murders committed with axes. Colorado Springs police authorities are not inclined to think that there is any connection between the murder of the Moore family at Villisca, Iowa, and the Burham Wayne murder mystery of September 17th in this city, in which six persons lost their lives. It is admitted, however, that there is a striking similarity in the crimes. In both cases, the victims were killed with an axe while asleep, and no apparent motive for the deed was found. Local authorities will make a careful investigation of the Villisca mystery, in hopes of finding some clues to the crime here. I am Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. <laughs>